There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hi. Hello. Welcome to Old Millennials, a deep dive on shallow topics from the late 90s and 2000s. I am one of your hosts, Margot Poupard. And I'm your other host, Emily Beijing. One cultural phenomenon you can always count on is the public turning very dramatically on a woman they perceive to be too much of something. Whether it's because she's too perfect, too successful, too positive, or some other variation of having it all but in an unrelatable way, there is just something about a woman who doesn't do anything necessarily wrong that drives society to hate her, but more so like the mob mentality takes over and all of a sudden we all just agree, well, this bitch needs to be taken down a notch. We've seen it happen with Jessica Simpson, more recently with Jennifer Lawrence and Constance Wu, but no one holds the record for being so universally reviled for truly no reason other than Anne Hathaway. Do you remember Hathahate when it was at its peak, at its nexus? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it was it was everywhere. I, you know, in, if we're talking about sides we took and everything, like, I was not a hater. I think I was annoyed at times. But in hindsight, it's not really her. It was the press coverage around her. And it was all my, like, deep-seated insecurities as a former theater kid, to be quite honest. For sure. Yeah, it's like every fear you have, even if you aren't at the, like, theater, if you're any sort of, like, creative type, like, that anxiety about, like, do you want to watch the thing I worked on? And everyone being like, you're so fucking annoying. Shut up. Like, it's that she represented that fear kind of, like, coming to life. And like you... And same with, like, Jessica Simpson and Jennifer Lawrence and Constance Wu. I, I for, personally, I never thought what Constance Wu said was, like, so terrible. Like, no. People are allowed to want to move on from their job, especially if you're being sexually harassed by a producer, which we need to add making a scene to our celebrity memoir reading list. But yeah, it's more so, like, not hate. It's more just, like, they are overexposed to a point where you're like, I, I need a break. It's like yeah. when you hang out with somebody nonstop for, like, three weeks, you're like, I just need to be alone with my own thoughts for just two seconds. And then I can really decide if I like or don't like you or what. And I feel like, uh, especially with Jennifer Lawrence's most recent press tour supporting Causeway, which I heard is very good, she talks a lot about how it kind of, like, came down to her team making a lot of the decisions. You know, that's why she felt like she was really starting to do things like passengers that she didn't feel she was totally aligned with, but just felt like she had to keep the train running. And 
there's some of that with Anne Hathaway of just like she had all these opportunities ahead of her. Why? If you were in her position, wouldn't you have taken them? Maybe not all of them made total sense for her career, but it's one of those things where like how many times would you ever be offered to host the Oscars? I mean, quickly you realize why no one wants to do it, but like that's not the point, right? Like if somebody asked you to host the Oscars, you would seriously consider it, even if it just sounded like the worst experience you might have in your life. Yeah, and I think that Anne Hathaway's rise to fame came at a time when, um, you know, I think we've seen a huge shift in the last five, 10 years around more roles being offered to older women and older women being allowed to be hot in those older roles, not just sure. as a mother, teacher, wisdom figure type of character. As we were um, talking but- about yesterday, Jenna from 30 Rock auditioning to be the daughter when she was really going to be the grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and like Goldie Hawn and First Wives Club, like I'm Monique's sure. mother, like it's all of that. But I think that Anne Hathaway did exactly what any female star in her position, especially at that time would have done, which is striking while the iron is hot because you never know when someone deems you unfuckable in Hollywood. It happens very quickly. See Sally Field, who went from being Tom Hanks's love interest in one movie to playing his mother in Forrest Gump. Yeah, so, and the movies were like, what, two years apart? You're like, exactly. what changed for her personally? She is still a very hot woman in her 70s, and yet Hollywood decided otherwise 20 years ago. And that's the thing. It's like Anne, no, Anne Hathaway is a smart woman, and she knew at the time she had to do what she had to do. Especially in her industry. It's so and it's it's drilled into women in society in general, too. But by way of Hollywood, not to be like that person. But yeah, you have to strike while the iron is hot because youth is fleeting and you will not be getting these offers because you aren't a man and you aren't going to be deemed as desirable once you aren't able to have kids anymore. Because apparently mentally we are all still in the renaissance era, apparently. But as much as she's not necessarily my favorite comedian, I think Amy Schumer's last fuckable day sketch is probably one of the most accurate and yes sad but very funny sketches and and it strikes on exactly what we're talking about but it, the Brits kind of refer to maybe what Anne Hathaway experienced in 20 let's say from like 2011 through like 2013 is tall poppy syndrome which means the bloom that pokes above all of the others is the first to get cut And honestly, Anne Hathaway's height alone was a reason enough to hate her in 2012. Like, it was completely reasonable. But now, just as it's as culturally acceptable to say that 2013's hate of Anne Hathaway was based on systemic misogyny, it was just as culturally acceptable in 2013 to say that you hated Anne Hathaway for no reason. It's also reasonable to argue that 2013's hatred of Hathaway was based on her culture's deep-seated hatred of women, which we talked a little bit about it before we recorded, but nothing represents that more, at least to me, and I know you as well personally, than the 2016 election and just how, again, universally reviled Hillary Clinton was for just being competent, for being too competent. It's it's over. And I I mean, even this week's election, like, oh, Lord. I mean, it's just it, it's it comes which up there over were and over. wins like let's not be negative. There were wins oh, yeah. and we've had were... we had way more LGBTQ people elected to office than any other year and more people of color than in any other year. So there are Don't... there are wins. Right. But there are right, also times where we're like, mm, like Elizabeth Warren, like uh, she's like too mean mommy. Like she's so and... perfect. Like she would just go and crunch numbers and like save the economy. And like, I want to have a beer with my politician I... or my celebrity, which is just totally. Totally. an insane notion. 
and like I know there's a racial component to Stacey sure. Abrams as well. But Stacey Abrams is another example of this. An okay. incredibly qualified woman who like basically registered the entire state of Georgia to vote in the last two, three years. And yet uh, time and time again, the people of Georgia have decided they would rather spend their time with an incompetent moron because he's more likable. And of course, there's a whole racial factor, which we're not going to get into because that's a different episode. But I, but to your point, it is over and over again. Competent women are are given are made to take a seat, uh, and instead, the opportunity is given to a man who just seems more likable in the eyes of whatever general population is voting or just making the decision at that time. And I know you said this earlier that you think that we're like in a different place than we were in 2013, but I don't really know. I'm not so sure that we've actually internalized the lesson yeah. um, as as a culture because it seems that we continue to repeat the pattern with every new crop of actors and actresses that come up. And I think Constance Wu was like a great example of like a really current one. And it's kind of ironic that at times in some of these like think pieces, because a boy does like the media love a snake eating its own tail. The amount mm-hmm. of think pieces that talked about how unlikable Anne Hathaway was and how likable Jennifer Lawrence is only for the tides to turn maybe a year or two later on Jennifer Lawrence after she wins her own Oscar is just sort of like the level of irony that I don't think people register uh, at all and look back and think maybe we should do things differently next time. Yeah. Well, culture author Neil Gabler summed up the phenomena of Hatha hate and Hathaway are so hard to say differently. <laughs> summed up the phenomena of Hatha hate this way. Quote, we love authenticity. That's why we have a billion reality shows. And here comes Anne Hathaway. Everything she does seems managed, calculated, or rehearsed. Her inauthenticity or the feeling of her inauthenticity is what made it viral. And we'll get into it in a little bit, but it's like the try-hardy, sincere, earnest, like I so want to please everybody was translated as like a positive thing one day and just like Sally Field and the next day, you're a bitch for it or it makes you unlikable. But it kind of happens to Anne Hathaway in like four different phases. And we're going to break those four different phases down. But before we do that, we're going to get into a little background about Anne Hathaway, just in case you're like, who, what, or you don't, other than the the Hatha hate gate, aren't super familiar with like her background and upbringing, which again, if you are primed to dislike her, some of this might make you roll your eyes. <laughs> it's true. I mean, like she is, you read any bio about her and it's all of the like, full circle moments that's the the perfect packaging of destined to be an actress that would make people roll their eyes like but it's in, there's no but if a dude says it or if she came oh, from yeah. like a more a more disadvantaged background and she had more challenges to overcome people would see it as like a triumph as so exactly. charming as part yes. of her story but totally. because it doesn't really seem like she's had to go through too much and it was and it seems easy for her that it's used against her Yeah, that's really it. Um, So a little bit background on Anne Hathaway. She was born November 12th, 1982. She is turning 40 this week. So happy birthday, Anne Hathaway. Uh, She goes by Annie in real life with her friends and family. And she was born in Brooklyn to Gerald, a labor attorney, and Kate, a former actress. She was named after Anne Hathaway, Shakespeare's wife, which, you know, again, what I was talking about earlier, and was raised in Milburn, New Jersey, specifically the Short Hills area, making her a North Jersey girl, a.k.a. someone who says Taylor ham instead of pork roll, because that's how New Jersey geography works, apparently. Uh, She's a middle child with an older brother and a younger brother. 
And she first caught the acting bug in a full circle twist when she saw her mom perform in a local production of Les Miserables as Fantine, which was obviously the role that would garner her first Oscar for Best Supporting Actress. Her parents were not into the idea of wanting her to act as a kid, which like after everything we've talked about on this podcast, especially this year, is such a breath of fresh air. Um, We've had to read and talk about so many child stars who were kind of thrust into that world by parents that like uh, it's it's It's, nice. (laughs) It's made us question, do we need child actors or have we evolved past the need? Is it worth it? Can't Seriously. we just can't we just lean it like can't we just CGI a face a baby face onto an like an adult actor? Yeah, or adult face, yeah, adult face on a baby actor. Like, oh yeah, let's just do that. I mean, look, it it won awards in France, so who's to say <laughs> it can't be successful in the rest of the world? Um, think so about she, it. <laughs> think about it. <laughs> She, like us, is a lapsed Catholic. Uh, Her family left the church when she was a teenager because her brother came out as gay, and she's always been very supportive of LGBTQ rights, which you'll get into later. Uh, She was, by all accounts, a total theater kid in high school. She did theater at Milburn High School, where she went and she acted in productions at the Paper Mill Playhouse, where she was a Rising Star Award nominee, which is an award that they give out every year to someone who is promising. The Paper Mill Playhouse is really well known in terms of regional off-Broadway theaters because of how close it is to Manhattan. And so their productions have featured notable Broadway stars such as Bernadette Peters, Liza Minnelli, Cheetah Rivera, Christian Chenoweth, Carol Channing, and a lot of other actors and singers got their start at the Paper Mill Playhouse, including Nick Jonas, Shanice Williams, and Broadway star Laura Benanti. Anne also starred at, or excuse me, Anne also studied at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts in 1993 and became the first teenager admitted into the Barrow Group Theater Company's acting program. She also sang in the All Eastern U.S. High School Honors Chorus at Carnegie Hall. And a few days after performing at Carnegie Hall, she will be cast in Get Real, a short-lived family dramedy on Fox which lasted for one season. And fun fact, her brothers were played by Eric Christian Olsen and Jesse Eisenberg. (laughs) Truly a fever dream of a cast. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Anyway, um, Get Real was canceled after one season, like I mentioned earlier, on April of 2000. But no worries for Annie, because that year, at the age of 18, she will audition for The Princess Diaries using during a 26-hour layover in L.A. while traveling to New Zealand to film The Other Side of Heaven, a lesser-known early film of hers. That we've talked about before. We have, yeah. The audition took place because Juliette Lewis had turned down the role, which, I mean, let's take a moment here. Can you even imagine Juliette Lewis as Princess Mia? No, this is a perfect example of I think Anne Hathaway could play Juliette Lewis's character in Yellow Jackets, but I don't think yes. Juliette Lewis could be Mia in Princess Diaries. There is just yes. something she could maybe play Heather Mazzarato's character, but yes. not. There's nothing, and I mean this with all the love of my heart. I love Juliette Lewis. I think she's a fantastic actor and a wonderful lead singer of a band, but she doesn't have princess energy. No, <laughs> there's no. nothing about her that feels princessy. I feel like. Yeah, it's just not something that's in her wheelhouse. She's not super girly. And I'm not saying you have to be super girly. You can be whatever. But I just, that would be just be a completely fucking different movie, right? Like, it's just not, it would be Juliette Lewis's Princess Diaries. It would not be the same. 
it's an SNL sketch with Julie Andrews it's an SNL sketch it's an SNL sketch like there's no other way I see this playing out like it is uh there is Jordan Peele's character from that Gremlins 2 pitch sketch (laughs) it's him pitching this movie with Juliette Lewis like that's all I can picture truly and I think like to your point because of her character and Rachel getting married she could very well play Juliette Lewis's character in Yellow Jackets a very similar role Yeah, yeah absolutely agree with you um, so Anne Hathaway very famously won this role after she fell off her chair during the audition and director Gary Marshall loved how clumsy she was. And by the way, if you ever want to learn more about the Princess Diaries, we have a Princess Diaries episode, which you can check out. Uh, that's just a pitch for our backlog of amazing episodes that you should definitely check out if you're new to our podcast. Um, the Princess Diaries was released in 2001. It was a huge success, grossing over $165 million and making her a very, very big star. She will be after that in Nicholas Nickleby with Charlie Hunnam, Nathan Lane, Jim Broadbent, Christopher Plummer, and Jamie Bell. And then in 2004, she will be in the Princess Diaries sequel, Princess Diaries to Royal Engagement, and then the film adaptation of Ella Enchanted, where people get to hear her really good singing voice for the first time. And I think this is kind of a good transition point for you to go into your discussion. I also just want to say Ella Enchanted is a really good book to movie adaptation. I would agree. I think they cut in the right places and I think they did a really got great job turning it into kind of a musical. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, unlike the adaptation of Power of the Dog, which I just finished <laughs> reading that book and I got to say a movie 15 times better. Thank God for Gene Campion. <laughs> okay. So phase one of having everybody turn against you is called Who's That Girl? So Anne Hathaway starts as the girl who is in all the movies that the teens love to, hey, this girl can act in 2005. So it's like a year removed from Princess Diaries 2, and she's cast in Brokeback Mountain. And even though Heath, R.I.P., and Jakey G were critically lauded, it's also really easy to say that White Michelle Williams and Anne Hathaway were really like the breakout stars. And then after that, she kind of stars in a couple of commercially and or critically or both movies. So Devil Wears Prada, Get Smart, Rachel Getting Married. It's a really decent mix. So she's steadily like on the climb up and she hits phase two. She's perfect. She's beautiful. She's Anne Hathaway. So after Rachel Getting Married, this is where the critics said that she was actually the least hateable part of the whole movie, which is very funny, uh, you know, looking back <laughs> in the way that hindsight can be funny. And she solidifies her status as a former Disney princess. It is official because the New York Times writes an article about her, about how she is finally coming of age. So this is also the first time with Rachel getting married that she gets a bunch of Oscar buzz, even though there was a little bit of buzz around Devil Wears Prada. It was mostly just for Meryl. This is also, though, around the time where like her shtick might be starting to wear thin. First, she has like a couple of flops. She has Bride Wars and Love and Other Drugs, but people mostly fault the film overall versus her persona or her acting or her just her general being being the reason why it tanked. But then it was announced that she's going to host the 2011 Oscars with James Franco. An absolute disaster from Jump because their work habits and personalities were a total fucking mismatch. An example of their differing work styles. Just one, because this is actually quite funny. Well, I don't know. I don't know if funny is the right word. But this is, I think this is a perfect shining example of like, this is doomed from the start. Why did we even do this? So the Oscar staff writers decide to write a sketch for the two of them that would take obviously months to prep and shoot. And it was a spoof of Christopher Nolan's movie Inception. I pulled some of these quotes from 
and as told to by the ringer. Um, and so this is this quote is attributed to Jordan Rubin. And he says, quote, and made herself readily available. I went to her house and worked on the script and she was on a bunch of conference calls and responding to emails. She was a great collaborator. But Rubin goes on to say that Franco was deep in his college phase. Remember that taking doctoral yeah. classes in the English department at Yale. And, in, and he was always in Connecticut and he was fly, flying back and forth. Quote, he always seemed to be on a flight and it was very hard for me to get a hold of him. That was a red flag. You don't think that was a red flag? <laughs> I've told you this, but I have a friend that was working in an art gallery at this time while James Franco was like deep in this. I'm I'm like an artsy scholar person. Like, I don't understand what this drag was all about, but that's fine. And he was opening up an, an art show that was like dedicated to like Brad Renfro's like memory. And it was I mean, it wasn't art so much as it was like a broken mirror with like some smeared lipstick over it that said Brad Renfro forever. Anyway, she said that it was extremely extremely difficult to get a hold of him between the Oscars and the school and all this stuff. And he had like six assistants and none of them ever knew where he was. James Franco was like always asleep or on a flight. And then he Mm-mm. finally shows up for like the opening late as hell. He's there for like maybe 15 minutes, takes one picture, signs one autograph and then bails. And like this dude sucks. But why didn't that? I mean, I think it eventually caught up with him, you know, recently. But why didn't that kind of stick to him during this time? Kind of. I mean, we know why, but yes. And to your point, I like I I I've talked about this like Busy Phillips's memoir. She talks Mm. about the set of freaks and geeks, and she talks about how rude James Franco was to her, and in general, he was very difficult to work with. And so this is back in like 1999. Um, you know, ten years, ten plus years before he and Anne Hathaway would host the Oscars, and before like the James Franco Oscar buzz and everything like that. And yet, you know, he continued to be really difficult to work with. And, you know, he just had this public image of being like a lovable, you know, offbeat kind of stonery joker. And part of that was Pineapple Express. But part of that was just like the image he gave himself all the time. Like it it, between, you know, being a part of like the um, Judd Apatow of it all. And I think that it is interesting. It took so long for the real James Franco to uh, catch up with the um, public persona of James Franco. Yeah, it turns out he's not like Seth Rogen. <laughs> yeah. Anywho, at all. During rehearsals, Hathaway, quote, showed up ready to play and committed 110%, while Franco, quote, was a great guy, but often looked like he had just woken up from a nap. It's almost like you're showing up to a tennis court and one person decided that they were going to play the U.S. Open and the other decided that they wanted to play in jeans and just kind of like hit a few balls, which I just think is the perfect encapsulation of their energy during this just one of the worst. I mean, yeah, one of the worst Oscars in recent memory, (laughs) which is really, really really saying something. Yeah. Ruben also said that things got worse one day when Hathaway kindly tried to give Franco a note on a line that wasn't working. And Franco snapped at her, don't tell me how to be funny, (laughs) which considering that I don't actually think that he's naturally funny. It's just like maybe it's his persona that takes over and people think that that's funny. He's not a comedian. So I don't know. Maybe take the note. Unclear. Don't know why you need to say that. But after that, though, production scrapped duets with the two of them as chaos mounted and they kept failing to connect. Then things got even worse when Franco went on noted misogynist late night host Letterman show and truly just threw a whole bunch of gas on the fire after weeks of speculation about their lack of work chemistry. Quote, I love her, but Anne Hathaway is so energetic. I think the Tasmanian devil would look stone standing next to her. Thanks a lot, dickhead. 
which dovetails great into phase three, which I aptly called fuck this bitch. So after many years to months of Anne Hathaway's face being on magazine covers, in talk shows, in movie trailers, the public starts to get sick of her. The Oscars were a total bomb, as Ellie Weekly called it, quote, the most embarrassing Academy Awards ever, which, again, just you wait, Ellie Weekly. <laughs> there are so many other embarrassing uh, Academy Awards, but that's fine. And while everybody agreed that Hathaway at least tried versus Franco, who looked like he wanted to be anywhere but hosting the Oscars, this marked the moment that people started regularly describing her as, quote, a theater kid. And it was not a compliment to be called a, the a theater kid. It was basically a shorthand for tryhard. And now a quick note on being a tryhard. This is very like gone girl, I'm the cool girl type manic pixie bullshit that gets put on women. Obviously, there is nothing wrong with trying hard, but sometimes working hard and trying hard are perceived very differently. Beyonce works hard, but no one would ever call her a tryhard. A tryhard is someone who works hard, and while you watch them do that, you secretly root for them to fail. Think about housewives trying to make the cut, like uh, Angie H. on Salt Lake City or Teddy Mellencamp. <laughs> but there's also the case of non-reality stars, where, you know, they just have an incredible work ethic one year, and then it quickly becomes weaponized as tryhard status the next, when you're a woman. We have experience being a tryhard, or being called a tryhard, and it makes you feel like shit, because it's like, I genuinely do want to succeed at being good at stuff and it doesn't come naturally to people and sometimes when you act like you want things everybody acts like you're a monster for being open about how you want to be good at things and you would like to be successful and I don't understand what's so wrong with trying hard I wish some people would try a little harder sometimes it's it's something that comes up a lot with uh, there are several other actors, musicians, what have you, whose personas. I know that I'm more of the Taylor Swift girly here, and I'm, there are plenty of things we can talk about with Taylor Swift. But one thing that I don't think has ever been fair to criticize her on is that very early on in her career, kind of a midway point, she was given a lot of grief, I think, for being very orchestrated about her image and what she put out there, what she didn't put out there. Um, and back then, it was seen as a certain thing around controlling the narrative and like how why can't she be you know more okay with showing a flawed image of herself and in some ways you know I think I've been able to understand that better in the last few years seeing that you know she would get criticism if she did it one way and then if she tried to be you know more less uh how to say this like self protective of her image or like edited about her image, she would get flack on the other side of it as well. I think that she's ultimately, she's another great example of someone who I think, yes, you can dislike her for other things, but I think for in this case, she had a lot of media pressure because she was very careful about what she was putting out there, even once when she had the control over her image. Right. But like, why would people accuse Taylor Swift of doing the same thing that essentially the Kardashians do? You know, exactly. It's, it's a playbook now. And it's I, you can't say it's inauthentic because it's authentic to the brand that they've built. And although I have separate issues with people being brands because you're not a brand, you're a person. A brand is like Kellogg's. It, it I don't think that I I have no problem with Taylor Swift. Her music is not my type, but she definitely works hard. And I would say early, I would say the transition from country to pop where she had squads, that was fully a try hard moment, right? Like trying yeah. really hard to be like, I'm a girl's girl and like girl power and like fuck Kanye. 
Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. And although in retrospect, she was right about a lot of stuff. <laughs> It took 10 years, but here we are. Look, I mean, for women, it takes about 10 years for the circle to come back around because, again, yeah. not to always make things about housewives. But if there's one thing about the tables, they turn, baby. And they turn. If you stick around long enough, you might be vindicated. Might. Unclear. You got to, like, people have to, things have to, the culture has to shift and, like, people have to die and, like, things have to happen in order for you to, like, get your moment to shine. But, yes, she... She was called a tryhard in that transition because she was trying hard to get away from country music and be a pop star. And again, I don't think there's I shouldn't don't think there should be the stigma around women who try hard. As yes. we talked about, it's like Leonardo DiCaprio does, basically him and Anne Hathaway, I think, have very similar careers in a lot of ways. But he never, ever gets called a tryhard. That man tried so hard to get an Oscar for years and years and was just open and was very bald about it. But Anne Hathaway decides, oh, I want an Oscar for this role in Les Mis and suddenly she's desperate, suddenly she's thirsty. That doesn't make any sense. Like they both have very similar trajectories where they were like, you know, teeny bopper stars. Then they evolved and they started getting like Oscar buzz and they just sort of kept going on the Oscar track. She just happened to get there faster than him. And suddenly she's the bad guy. I, I think that it also um, contextually makes a lot of sense on top of everything else of why people went after Anne Hathaway. Contextually, she ends up getting nominated for that Supporting Actress Oscar either a year or two after Monique is nominated and wins oh, right. the Oscar mm -hmm. for Precious. Monique very famously did not do any of the campaigning because um, for those of you who know how the world of awards works – you got to run that. You got to do the campaign. You do the press yeah. tours. You do you do the song and dance. Well, how much you have to. That's that's basically what you do. Tom and Lorenzo of the fashion blog call it the <laughs> awards pole dance where you have yeah. to go to the luncheons. You have to be nice to everybody. You have to you yep. have to kiss the ring like repeatedly. Right. And like that's yes. why to your point about Monique, she was essentially blackballed for years afterwards. Yes. And uh, but she as a result, you know, people applauded her for this. And I think Anne Hathaway coming into the mix of Oscar buzz a year or two after that happened only added fuel to the flames of the vitriol that she received for just being someone who is good at what she does and works hard to be good at what she does. Yes. So that is a perfect segue into the point where she committed the ultimate sin. She was openly ambitious and because she made it very clear that she wanted to win for her performance in Les Mis in 2012. And as we were just talking about, this is the biggest joke of all time because the amount of times that Leonardo DiCaprio has openly thirsted for an Oscar until they finally relented with his little bear fight in the woods movie, no one ever called this vaping, perpetually dating 25-year-old man's a tryhard despite all the signs. So I'm just putting that up there. Just a little, just a little food for thought. Talk amongst yourselves. But she eventually won, and when she opened her speech by whispering, it came true, everyone fucking hated her. <laughs> and then came all of the think pieces about the myriad and sundry ways that we all hate Anne Hathaway. It's her teeth. It's her face. She's too perfect. She ruined the dark night, even though she was in the dark night for like eight minutes tops. 
She got her own hashtag, half a hater. And then the second wave of think pieces came out that compared her to Jennifer Lawrence, unironically, because we can't even see the future when it's happening right in front of us. She's going to face her own backlash after she wins an Oscar and she falls up the stairs and everybody thinks it's an act. So we're at this like nexus of like everybody hates Anne Hathaway. And that's when she smartly realized, you know what? I'm not going to engage. I'm going to take a step back. And I'm not saying that she stopped acting because she didn't. She just, you know, was in Rio 2 and was in smaller movies. She was like in The Intern, which did really well, all things considering. But not a lot of people saw The Intern, especially opening weekend. I would agree with that. But I think The Intern is a great example of Anne Hathaway's life um, uh, depicting art or vice versa or like mm-hmm. whatever you want to say, because the character she plays in The Intern is an exam is you know a woman in power who's being told that she uh, needs to reconsider you know her position um, and go for and that there should be someone presumably male who comes in to step in for what she has worked so hard to get to and that she has to deal with the um, difficulties in being a working not just a working mother but a working mother in a power a, a place of power where she gets you know all these little like half-assed or like um, backhanded compliments from the moms at her daughter's Brooklyn preschool like oh you just work so hard like I don't know how you can be here dropping off your daughter when you've got such a big job you know and it's it, like but it's it's like that you know in Hollywood and to a certain extent of just like you know, you get to this point, you've worked for this. And yeah, I think it's, I think it was a smart role for her to pick. I'm sure Nancy Myers approached her for it, but I think it was perfect for her to play that role at that time. Yeah. I mean, to your point about uh, like the backhanded compliments, it's like she couldn't win for losing. Like there was all of the discussion around like her dress that she wore to the Oscars. Like, oh, you can see her boobs and she did it on purpose when really it was like it was a wardrobe malfunction. She was late. It seemed like she was just having the worst day leading up to the Oscars. But everybody wanted to pick that apart. And I think a really good example of how people just thought they could talk to her any which way because the dislike for her was so palpable and was so a part of culture and like was a water cooler moment that everybody had to talk about the when she was interviewed by Matt Lauer leading up to the Oscars and a paparazzi had taken a photo like up her skirt and the way that he spoke to her was so disgusting not like he didn't talk to other people that way too but it really felt like he felt empowered to speak to her like you're just like a little bad girl who wants like paparazzi to take pictures of your skirt like the way that he made he was doing that on purpose because he was like, well, I'm just going to like, I'm really going to give it to her because everybody hates her and like, what a little slut, like showing it off. And the way that she handled him was so impressive because no one gives her enough credit for the amount of grace and poise that she had when I fully would have <laughs> dragged that man by the scalp if he said anything to me like that. TV or no. I am so mad that so many predators exist in Hollywood and have continued to exist even after the Me Too movement. But seeing Matt Lauer get canceled and having no job prospects whatsoever has been finally such a <laughs> such a great moment because this man constantly, constantly had based his entire career on pushing away other women who deserved opportunities. One, Ann Curry. Two, Anne Hathaway. And then three, when he talked to GM CEO Mary Barra at the time, who was the first, I believe, the first woman to ever head a automotive company, 
He had the fucking audacity to ask this woman how she planned on managing her day-to-day as a CAO while having children because this man would never ask a man the same question, even if this guy was a, like, it's, it is such bullshit. Again, I can't say this enough. This is a man who deserved to go under even before we found out he was nothing but a fucking creep. $20 million a year, baby. That is insane. This man got paid $20 million a year to be a jerk. Look, at least one thing from cancel culture actually stuck. And for that, thank you. (laughs) I'm so happy. But yeah, so Anne Hathaway spends a couple of years sort of in actress purgatory, right? She's still working pretty steadily, but she's not getting as much press coverage as she would in the most recent years in mm, actress purgatory. And she's not not getting any work. She's getting some work like we like we talked about. She was in the intern. She lent her voice to some stuff. She was in that not so great movie with Rebel Wilson. But I think it's it's never been a ding on her acting chops. No one's ever been like she's a terrible actor. It is, unfortunately has more to do with her personality than it has to do with anything else. But now, you know, we are we're coming up on ugh, oh my god, 10 years removed from Half the Hate. And I just want to know, and and this is where we're entering the fourth and final phase, what I like to call revisionist history. Do you think we learned anything from Half a Hate? I don't think we learned much, but I do think we learned one thing, which is uh, if we dislike someone just for the sake of disliking them as a society, uh, we don't hate on them immediately. They have to have one like cardinal offense that they commit and then we will jump so quickly on their ass. And that's, I think, the difference. Like Leah Michelle of it all. Like Leah Michelle was very much in the Anne Hathaway world of being a theater kid, Got did theater early on, like, you know, was very talented. When we talk about a performer, she is a very talented singer and all and Broadway performer. Um, and she was good on Glee, whether you like to say it or not. But we knew we didn't like her because of her personality. And we had heard little things here and there. But the moment we had something that we could hang our hat on here, a proof that she was terrible to her co-stars, we went for it immediately. And I don't say we shouldn't have because she is not great like uh, as a person. I don't think she's great. And I think that there are plenty of other very talented people who deserve the opportunities she's gotten. But I think that in this is a great example of the like small place where we maybe have shifted as a society. I don't necessarily even know if that's much better, though, right? Like because dunking on her, whether it's justified or not, doesn't prohibit her from also working. Like she's still on Broadway. Like You're I right. guess my question is like, what is the greater goal of hating on somebody uh, as a society at large? Like. Okay, then don't see Funny Girl. Like, it, there's a massive barrier of entry to to seeing someone on Broadway to begin with. So I don't really see what the problem is. You don't like her, you can quietly not like somebody. As I quietly don't like Taylor Swift. Like, uh, she's not for me, but I recognize that she yeah. does other things for other people. And I think yeah. the one person, and I don't want to give this white man any credit, but like, I feel like the one person who gets a lot of sort of like unjustified dislike, even though I don't like him either, and it is fun to dunk on him, is Chris Pratt. He went yeah. from being universally loved as Andy on Parks and Rec. And then even when he got buff and was like doing Marvel stuff, everyone's like, good for him. Good for him. And I know that people also did that with Camille Nanjiani. And luckily, nobody turned on Camille 
thank God, because that would be terrible. But he's also, you know, his politics are um, in line with what people would hope that they are. Unlike Chris Pratt, who was sort of like, oh, I don't have politics. I don't have politics. And then he kind of comes out as a conservative Republican who is clearly trying to make some sort of move into politics, despite being just dramatically underqualified. Marrying somebody who's vaguely associated to government doesn't make you a a special person but the amount of like shit that he got for being mario's voice like i don't know i think some of that is a little not warranted it's Hate not on him. his fault <laughs> yes exactly this is kind of goes back to like the jennifer lawrence and even like Anne hathaway we don't really know what her like quote-unquote team was like but if you're at one of those bigger agencies like a caa or something like that and you are a profitable person they will push you in and they will have you be in every opportunity that you can get your hands on because they're trying to make money while you are still a viable property because at some point it's going to slow down and i kind of kind of i would say that goes for both people like i don't really or both genders because i would say that like I mean, it goes a lot longer for men, but it's not like, you know, Al Pacino is still like making movies like he was in the 90s. That's all I'm trying to say. But with Chris Pratt, it's like, okay, if you guys hate him so much and you hate his face and he's so annoying, then we'll just make him be a voice. And like (laughs) Nobody wants that. And it's like push back on him, like trying to have political aspirations, not necessarily trying to do the voice of Mario. Although I think we all can agree that the best fit to play Mario's voice would be Jared Leto's voice from House of Gucci. We're all there. We're all upset about that. Yes, I understand. But yeah, I find it to be very interesting. He, it hasn't swung back around for Chris Pratt and I don't really know if it ever is going to, but I'm, I'm glad it has swung back around for Anne Hathaway. But I personally feel like we haven't learned anything because if you read the current pieces, because she's been out here, you know, she's going to be in um, that James Gray movie. That's getting a bunch of buzz called Armageddon time, which she stars with uh, Kenny Roy, which I can't even imagine those two. Like they're both capital a actors. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know if you remember that point in 2020 when Demois posted a bunch of stories about people seeing Anne Hathaway around New York, just like openly weeping like by herself or like having like a very impassioned conversation where she's weeping. And she addressed it in late night being like, I'm just like a very passionate person. I cry in public all the time. And that's when everyone was like, yes, queen, show those emotions like therapy's working. (laughs) If she said that 10 years ago and be like, oh, what a fucking bitch. Just like I know when you told me that her name is inspired by Shakespeare, like I had to fight the urge to roll my eyes because I (laughs) she doesn't have anything to do with her name. Like, that's just who she is. But I, I don't think, think we- that we've learned anything because every time a journalist asks her a question about half the hate, it's never like an introspective question about what we can do as a culture, as a society going forward. It's more about like, oh, you're so brave. Oh, you're so strong. Like, it's always about how she's learned something from being harassed by simply just having a public facing job, which Versus I just find to be. Us. Yes. Which I just find to be a red flag. Yeah, I think we put a lot of onus on this woman to make mm-hmm. choices so that we can like her better as a society rather than having uh, us as a society take a moment to, you know, put a mirror out there and shine a light on where our huge problem areas are, which is that we expect a lot out of our celebrities. We expect them to be relatable. We expect them to be experts in a time of turmoil or political, you know, disagreement, whatever you want to call it. But ultimately, you know, there was a world pre-Ronald Reagan in which you could just be an actor and be an actor. And that was it. Or you could be a politician and just a politician who went to, you know, call like the right schools and had the experience you needed. And you didn't have to be someone. A career politician, which is what we should strive for. (laughs) 
some yeah god forbid you aren't going to be the one people want to have a beer with but rather would turn to because you have expertise in foreign policy or national policy or the economy which is kind of fucking important and whenever you're dealing with what we're dealing with right now it is we we talked a little bit about this with harry styles and don't worry darling which is just <laughs> that every, it is not enough these days to just be Pick one career and go with it. Sure. If you are a public figure, because of how you, we're talking about the brand of it all, we're talking about social media, all of these things, you have to be able to be your nine to five is one thing, but then your, you know, it's not a side hustle so much, but there needs to be an angle on your personality that tells us you're doing something else. So you're not longer just an actor. You're an actor, but you're also into making investments like Ashton Kutcher, which is fine. If you have the money, do it, whatever. But like, sure, that's but- a part of his public persona now. Right. And but what works he- for Ashton Kutcher does not work for a person who makes 60K a year. You know what I mean? Exactly. But I wonder... There is an interesting world here because we talk, we want our celebrities and politicians, and I say we as a society, we want them to be relatable. But in their decisions or their positions now where they are no longer just one thing, but three or four or more than that things, they become unrelatable in a whole other way. And so, you know, I don't really know where we go from here, to be honest. I think a little of what you're talking about is like you have to be all of these things and you it's more like the angle on a personality. I think it's something that we, you know, to kind of tie it back to earlier in the intro is something that we borrowed from like reality TV. You have to like package yourself in a certain way. Right. Like a, a great example that I think about from reality casting is like you have a dead parent, right? Like that's your angle. Like that makes you sympathetic. Like people can relate even if they don't have dead parents because it's their greatest fear. And it's, and celebrities all have to now have this like dead parent angle for a lack of a better term to make you relatable and empathetic. And like, you've been through some stuff, so things aren't all handed out to you. But I think that now to go back to, have we learned anything as a culture? Sure. We like jump on the one thing that you do wrong, but I also think that we have transferred uh, disliking someone for no reason whatsoever onto Nepo babies now, which is something that yeah. we've like talked about before about just the rise of like Nepo babies, which like kind of makes sense, but like they've existed f- since time immemorial, right? But we only until recently have had a problem with some of them, and yeah, some of them like rightfully so, and some of them like you know like Maya Hawk just like just let her work, like it's fine, she's not doing anything wrong, but right. it's we've transferred that now. We just always need somebody. To dunk on. And it also goes back to like the reality TVification of it all of like someone needs to be doing worse than me. And I get it as somebody with as two people that watched the Love is Blind finale yesterday. Like, yes, we need to be seeing people make decisions yes. that are worse than our own to make ourselves feel better. But maybe we transfer yeah. that away from celebrity culture and maybe put that somewhere else. I don't know where else. But uh, just like we've talked before in the past, like you wouldn't want your doctor to also be giving you like financial advice, right? Like you want your doctor to like be good at making sure your organs aren't failing or whatever. So maybe we kind of give that to actors back a little bit because the persona that they have to put on or that the media puts on them ultimately kind of like affects uh, how you view them like literally in movies. Like Anne Hathaway truly couldn't be in a movie with her face in it for a little while because you were just going to put all of 
whatever you, whatever story, whatever narrative you built up around her, you just project it onto the movie. You wouldn't even be able to watch the movie because you're just so irritated and looking for anything to dislike. And I sort of feel like now personas get in the way or celebrity personas get in the way of like being able to enjoy a show or a movie because you know so much about everybody all the time. I agree. I mean, I think there is something about... I don't think I like the way old Hollywood was run in the sense of the studio. Sure. And- but we are, we are inching so close, though, back to studios. I know. And it's insane. I know. But there there was something to be said, though, about a world in which you could be an actor and just be an actor. And that's really – and you were praised for your craft. And your unrelatability was glamorous. Like, that was – it was actually seen right? as a wonderful asset. Like, people didn't want their movie stars to be relatable. Like, they I wanted mean, to go to this movie and, like, be able to escape reality. Yes. I mean, I, and I, Martha Stewart is so unrelatable. Yes. And that's exactly why we love her. Yes. She has fucking, she, she gets peacocks on her property mowed I, by, like, wolves. You're like, I have no I, idea what that's like. But you Margo, still – freak out every time she posts a thirst trap or she's with Drake or whatever. You're like, can you believe? (laughs) I, and I'm glad you brought up Martha Stewart because there is a great, you're wrong about, about Martha Stewart. And it talks about how she actually grew up in a working class, kind of middle class household in New Jersey. She did not grow up in this like lap of luxury that she now, you know, that is a part of her. I don't want to use the term brand here, but I mean it in a very different sense because she is a brand. She actually mm-hmm. sells things with her name on she's it. She's literally so on so a brand. Yes. She's, she's literally a brand. her in Target, Martha Stewart Living. But she is someone that people mistakenly think comes from a world of privilege and is unrelatable in that sense. And guess what? She worked very hard to be unrelatable. And I think anyway, if you're looking for a great podcast episode to check out, I really recommend the You're Wrong About on Martha Stewart because it was very interesting. So where does Anne Hathaway go from here? What are we going to do to prevent a Hatha hate happening again? As we as we round out the rest of this episode, because now we're like we're talking about Martha Stewart, but I I, I do agree. Like she works very hard, and no one's ever called her a try hard, but she's also extremely unrelatable, and that's what everybody loves about her. And so I think that Anne Hathaway, especially in this Hathasance that we're in, like girl has been serving looks. She was in. She was the best part of the WeWork show that we watched. Oh, we yes, thoroughly enjoyed. I mean, her and Jared Leto were that was like incredible casting, but she was so good as like Gwyneth Paltrow's distant cousin she like she had it all she was oh my god I I cannot uh stop thinking about the performance because it was truly a dream come true but like she seems very plugged into like people really love WRS Prada she gets in on like the discourse about that she recognizes how half the hate like dinged her dinged her her self-confidence truly but how she just bounced back and like i think there's a lot to be said about how she handled such a horrible situation with grace and poise and has managed to now have everybody on her side i wouldn't say apologizing to her but being like wow we're really wrong about that and she had that spread in hong kong vogue where she looks i mean gorge gorge i love i love the styling of this new era of of it all i know me too too. i just want her to be in some like um some better movies i mean i'm sure i'm gonna be great or whatever but i'm probably not gonna see that (laughs) i think that like she's been really touching into the camp icon status of it all right like she puts out these performances we said this before like the witches was not great but anne hathaway in the witches was a camp delight i mean i want her to stop being in these movies where we're like the movie sucked but anne hathaway was great in it (laughs) right right and like i think you know oceans eight is an example of a movie i liked and thought she was a camp goddess in like i there's to your point yeah she needs to 
give her some better scripts. Like, let's give her, I just think there, there's a lot of, she, she is someone, I didn't bring this up earlier, but in my notes, I have it, um, that when she was nominated for Rachel getting married, uh, that was the year. And I actually liked this about that Oscar year. The best actress nominees were announced by former best actress winners and mm-hmm. each one said something. And Shirley MacLaine was the person who got to speak on Anne Hathaway. And she said to Anne, this is your first nomination and it will certainly not be your last. And that's the thing with Anne Hathaway is I think not only have we as a society, thank God, taken a moment to recognize like how unfair we were to her, even if we haven't apologized. Uh, but I just I think I'm excited to see the next chapter of her career. And I really hope that she gets some scripts her way where it's no longer about her being the best one out of the movie in a movie that's otherwise mediocre, um, but really just being able to be a part of a great cast and a great movie. And to Shirley MacLaine's point, it will not be her last nomination. Yeah. And I would love anybody who's interviewing her not to ask her what she learned from being universally reviled for so long and instead ask what we can do to not do that to someone else how how should we have handled that instead i mean other than just like letting her live but i'm i'm glad that it didn't deter her because i can't imagine and i it's unfortunate that like the blog minds like you have to just like keep recycling this content and it just goes on. And that's just a part of like the 24 hour news cycle. And I think that it just is always going to find its next victim for better or worse. And I don't know what it's going to take to sort of like slow it down or make it not so mean sometimes, but Anne Hathaway's or I'm sorry, Annie Hathaway has managed to bounce back. (laughs) And I can't believe uh, this is like a few days before our birthday. So let's see what this next phase of her career will be like. And then we'll have another episode in 10 years about how great it was. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed what you heard, please make sure you're all subscribed up wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to support this podcast financially, you can join our Patreon where we have two bonus pieces of content a month. But in November and December, you will be getting three. We will be having a special newsletter of This Has Oscar Buzz uh, in November for movies that have Oscar buzz. And maybe we'll talk about Armageddon time. And then we will have our annual holiday streaming movie guide out in December. So if you want to gain access to that, like the beginning of the month is always great uh, for us and just to subscribe to our Patreon. It's Old Millennials Pod. Um, And if you are able to support us emotionally, you can do that by leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. And if you want to keep up with what the Old Millennials are up to, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at the Old Millennials Pod. And until next week, we bid you a bye-bye. Bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade.